Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. In episode 18, season one, I really enjoyed my conversation with the inspiring multi-style violinist Gina Burgess. During the episode, she plays a couple of her original tunes, and at the end we did an improv back and forth across our Zoom call. Gina is a founding member of the Iqaluit-based Arctic rock band, The Jerry Cans. It's a four-time East Coast Music Award winner with the band Gypsophilia. She fronts her own klezmer band, Der Heiser, and is a regular collaborator in flamenco and Arabic music ensembles. Gina has toured Europe twice over with Tim Crabtree's atmospheric ensemble, Paperbeat Scissors, and with folk pop artist, Gabrielle Papillon. Along with the Jerry Cans, Gina has performed and conducted youth workshops in Canada, Australia, Greenland, New Zealand, and Europe. In this conversation, we talked about Gina's path from her identity as a classical violinist through overcoming an overuse playing injury to finding her voice as an improviser and composer. We discussed music education quite a bit and some of the ways she's led youth workshops. Gina has a wonderful energy to her, and I hope you'll discover more of these conversations with a wide range of musicians by following this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. All these episodes are also available as videos. The link is in the description. Good morning, Gina Burgess. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So thanks for agreeing to play at the beginning of this. I'll play a tune called uh, Green Grass. And I wrote this tune after I sat in with a bluegrass, a real bluegrass band, and I realized that um, I do not know how to play bluegrass. <laughs> so this little tune came to me the day after, and it was also like the same week that um, Canada legalized marijuana. So I thought it was green grass was very appropriate name for this mm-hmm. song. So it's just a little fun folky tune. And I also do this one with a lot of my students, actually, because you can, uh, I'll just very briefly show you. That's the first part. Very basic. So little kids can play the open E, the other ones can play, you know, so there's lots that you can do with it. But then I show them the full meal deal and uh, I think it's exciting for them. It's exciting to play, so. With the whole band, it's even more exciting, but I'll give you a little taste. Thank <laughs> you. 
Thanks. That's such a great tune and so well played. Is that fun? Yeah. As we're speaking now in, in August, this will come out a bit later, uh, you've just started performing in person more for people. You just came back from a tour after this long um, pi- pandemic hiatus. Yeah. So how, does, how does it feel to be, to be doing that again? Um, it felt amazing and scary too, <clears throat> you know, just to be honest. Um, I think, yeah, it's been a year and a half and so certain social things have become normal Uh, Like wearing masks in Nova Scotia, like I wouldn't even imagine leaving my house without a mask, you know, in other parts of Canada, that's not the case. So it just was a little um, different, you know, Mm -hmm. and kind of coming out of the shell again. Um, But it was super awesome to see people who love music so much, you know, that they're at these first concerts and just right up front dancing, loving life, loving music. It's, it felt really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it's, you have a really interesting career. You've been a full-time touring musician for, I think, over 15 years, and you came from a classical background. And I would describe you as a, that you play, you're a multi-style player and singer, mm-hmm. you say. So do you want to start more at the beginning or more your projects right now? Um, doesn't matter. Where would you like to start? I mean, <laughs> How about when Gina was a kid? <laughs> okay. Um, I like to share this story because it's true. And it's the reason I started playing music. So my dad's folks are both classical musicians. Um, my granddad is a conductor, double bass player, organ player. And my grandmother is a cellist. So when I was three years old, I went to go see Nanny and Granddad and a woman named Gina playing Beethoven trios. So granddad was on piano, nanny was on cello, and this girl Gina was on violin. And I thought, like, my name's Gina. I'm going to do that. I want to do that. And I loved the music. Um, But my parents, I mean, I'm three years old, right? So they didn't believe me. And it wasn't until I was five years old that they bought me my first violin because I kept begging them and, like, picking up little Kleenex boxes and playing with pencils and stuff. So when I was five, they bought me a violin and put me into lessons at the Maritime Conservatory in Halifax um, with my young Joy Yoon, who is an incredible human. And I studied with her from when I was five until I was 16. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's how it all got started. And then did you think at that point when you were 16 um, that you would be like following a path as a orchestral player or chamber musician or were you already doing some different folk styles yeah um well I was playing in the youth orchestra and I loved playing orchestral music loved it um I also loved chamber music I had a string quartet we did gigs like I had a gigging string quartet and then I had a like competition string quartet um so I always loved chamber music um and I was doing quite a bit of solo stuff so I had my first Uh, I played the Beethoven Romance actually with Symphony Nova Scotia. I think I was 17 or 16. Um, So honestly, I actually kind of saw myself as going into a more of a solo Mm -hmm. violin, classical violin career. Yeah. At that point. And what changed? Uh, Well, I got a repetitive strain injury. Yeah. Um, From playing the violin Mm -hmm. and practicing a lot. So many hours of practice, my goodness. Um, 
So then I had a choice to make when I was able to use my hands again and I had to decide if I wanted to continue to study the violin again, like relearn it, I had to relearn it. Mm or do something else. And I think just my love of music is so strong and I also didn't do anything else in my life. Um, I decided to relearn the violin and that was extremely challenging. Like I have so much admiration for people who learn to walk again or learn to use their hands after a stroke. Like it's just so tedious, the work that you have to do. And when you're a child, you don't know any different, you know, so you learn how to write. But as an adult, learning how to write again is like, it just takes so much discipline. So for the violin, it was exactly that. I would, for weeks on end, pick up the violin and just put it there. Hold it there for a few minutes, not even two minutes, put it down. That was my practice for that day. Pick up the, the bow, see if I could hold it. That would be my practice, put it away. And then uh, for months, I would do finger one, finger two, all over again. And it was around that time uh, that a friend came back from music school and he um, also had a repetitive strain injury on guitar. Um, and he was telling me about Django Reinhardt, actually. And he said, have you ever heard of this music? And uh, Stefan Grappelli. And I did not know about those guys. Um, but as soon as I heard the first song, I was hooked. Like, yep, this is what I want to do. And because that music is so based around scales and arpeggios, I was able to use that music as a way to relearn my instrument. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what I did. Yeah. So how long did you have to stop playing for completely? Um, about a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was um, pretty brutal because I was at Dow on a full scholarship for music. And for the first two months, I couldn't even use my hands at all. Like I couldn't cut my food. I couldn't wash my hair, put on my socks. Any of those things that we just so take for granted, you know, um, yeah, let's, let's not take those things for granted. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you entered this jazz path, but you had been playing Celtic music before that? Yeah. So when I was nine, actually, um, my folks picked up a Cape Breton fiddle book mm -hmm. on one of their trips to Cape Breton. And uh, again, because I was reading music, I could just read the music in the book. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed the sound of that music. Of course, this is pre-internet, and I had never really heard a lot of Cape Breton fiddle. But after I started to play it, I started to look more into uh, recordings and tapes and stuff mm -hmm. from the library. And I heard fiddlers play it, and I thought, oh, that's how you play it. There's so much that's not on the page, yeah. you know? So I started to, like, kind of incorporate that. And that's exactly what I learned with the um, hot jazz as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so much of it you can see on the page, and then the rest is all just your own, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, you, um, when a person looks at your website and you've listed all your many collaborations, you've been a session musician for so many different artists, different styles, toured all over the world. Um, like, what's it like just being constantly on the road and for very long tours? How do you manage that? It can be super exhausting. Um, yeah, as we were just saying, this little dip back into tour life, there was only three gigs, you know? Okay. And I thought after those three gigs, poof, I'm done. <laughs> like, I don't know how I did this. Um, but certainly there are uh, tips or different things that have helped. Um, like I got into yoga. So there's quite a lot that you can do with just breathing techniques to wake you up or put you to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and, and we have some things that we like to do on the road as well, find swimming holes, you know, that's very reinvigorating. Um, and also just feel so good to be in nature and to be in water, drink lots of water, you know? Um, so certainly my alcohol intake has like gone down. My water intake has gone up. That helps a lot. Um, but also just the energy of the audiences. I mean, sometimes I think audiences feel that they're there and not participating necessarily, you know, but for me, they're more of the show than we are because we could be playing that stuff. I mean, we saw that all of this online stuff, you know, and it's great, but it's not the same and you don't have that same energy exchange at all. Yeah. So I think that's a big part of it is you get energy from the humans and the life around you. And I've noticed your role in different um, bands you play with is very often very rhythmic as well as melodic. Yeah, I love to play rhythm. Yeah. So that gives you energy too, like you're part of the rhythm section, you're driving. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Driving the dance, essentially. Yes, I love to dance too. So I'm one of those people, like, you'll just see me even yeah. at, like, a restaurant. If there's a tune on, like, I can't sit still. I just can't. Mm -hmm. so, and I think that's part of the energy exchange as well. Um, I wanted to ask you about education. I know you've done a ton of youth outreach, different kinds of workshops. You've taught obviously private, but a lot of group stuff, both online and in person. I noticed you'd led workshops in Greenland and just like all over New Zealand. So I'd love to hear about some of the ways you're working with kids and different kinds of techniques you use. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been teaching and working with people younger than me since I was 15. It started in junior high. Actually, mm -hmm. my uh, string chamber teacher asked me to help out somebody that was mm -hmm. a couple of grades below. And I never even contemplated that, but I did. I had a session with her and I realized like, oh, you came in and you couldn't play this and now you can play this. So I guess there's something happening, you know, and I loved it. I loved it. So that started my like teaching, I guess, if you will, or coaching. Um, and then I'd say it really started on my very first trip to Iqaluit, Um because I went up there. I thought I was going up there as a chaperone. Um, which I was totally cool with, you know, I taught the kids down in Halifax a tune, um, a non-classical tune, and I was going to go up there and watch them and play with them. And actually, uh, we all were able to sign up for different workshops when we got to Iqaluit. Um And this was a youth exchange between the conservatory and the Iqaluit Fiddle Ensemble. And so I signed my name up for a throat singing workshop because I've been also obsessed with throat singing since I first heard it. I think I was 21 or something. And uh, my boss basically said, well, oh, I noticed you're signed up for throat singing. Um, well, who do you think is giving the fiddle workshop? And I said, well, I don't know, some, some local person. And she's like, no, you, you are doing the workshop. And I had no teaching materials whatsoever. No oh. music, no sheet music, no books, nothing. Just me and my fiddle. So I thought, oh man, okay. And it was fine, it was totally great. We learned by rote, we played uh, hot swing music, we played fiddle music, improvising games, whatever I could do without any materials. Mm -hmm. And it was great, five days went by, boom, they learned a bunch of stuff, it was great. So I think that gave me the confidence to know like, oh, it's actually me as a human being interacting with these people. The violin is a tool, you know, for that <clears throat> energy exchange, really. And so um, it was that trip, actually, that I stayed with a woman uh, who recently passed. So I'm so thankful to her. 
for many things, but she, her son actually was looking for a fiddle player to teach music camps in different, more remote parts of Nunavut. Mm -hmm. So she asked um, if I, if she could give my name to him. And that started um, in a way the Jerry Can Band, mm -hmm. you know? So I started going up doing these music camps with Andrew and uh, we had some different people coming in at that time. Uh, Sila was doing hip hop dance for a little while. Um, Kathleen and then Nancy were doing throat singing. Andrew was going doing guitar, I was doing fiddle. Sometimes we had accordion. Hmm. And we did those camps in different communities for five, almost six years. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of similar stuff. Those games, the improv games, the list, a lot of Murray Schaefer like listening games, which are super cool to do in the Arctic because uh, those kids have completely different environment, completely different ears than we do, especially in big cities. Um, yeah, so we did a lot of that stuff. I mean, as a touring band, some circuits, you have the choice if you want to do teaching, if you want to go play in elder facilities. Um, so we would always sign up to do the youth workshops because we love working with kids and going to schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the schools wouldn't always have instruments, presumably it would be vocal or clapping or... Yeah, often. Um, sometimes they would. Uh, I was kind of surprised actually to see how many schools invest in music. Mm -hmm. um, it's heartwarming. Yeah. So I had heard there was a bit of a fiddle tradition up north because of the Scottish whalers that had come through and it's the same with accordion. Yeah, That's... totally. Mm -hmm. They're actually considered traditional instruments now. Yeah. Course. It's yeah. been a couple hundred years. Yeah. And as someone who grew up in the classical world kind of glued to the page, and now most of your career has been playing more by ear and by memory, How's, does it free you up? Yes, it does. Um, it does. But sometimes I long for the page, mm -hmm. you know, especially when it comes to practice, at home practice. Mm -hmm. If I'm practicing improv, sometimes, depending on my mood, my project, whatever, I just sit there. And I think, I don't have anything to say right now, <laughs> you know? I don't have anything, I don't know how to practice this right now. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you give me a Mozart string quartet, okay, boom, I'm on it, you know? So sometimes I long for that, just know what to do, correct it, execute it, next. Mm -hmm. With the improv, it's so ongoing and it's so forever, you know? And depending on the genre that you're working within or the project that you're hired for, mm -hmm. um, it's infinite, really. But I prefer to practice that kind of stuff with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have like a technical routine that's kind of your go-to for staying in shape? I would actually say yoga. Okay. So not so much on my violin anymore, you know. Um, again, growing up, I did the whole like one hour of um, scales, one hour of studies, one hour on one piece, another hour on another piece. Like I did that, you know. And... I'm glad I did because I feel like now I don't have to do that mm -hmm. for what I'm doing. Um, so my practice would, for keeping in shape is actually yoga and keeping the core engaged and strong mm -hmm. so that when I go to play my instrument, it's ergonomic and it's not going to throw me back into a, an injury state, you know? Mm -hmm. But if you were working with a young person who was... Yeah very serious about violin. I mean, would you have them doing that kind of re regime or would you have them exploring different styles and trying to reduce the number of hours they work so they could be more sensitive to ergonomics? Definitely. As well? 
Yes. So um, as a teacher, if you're going to come study with me, I tell you right off the bat, you are going to have to do classical music and you're going to have to choose something else. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to do that, fine, but you can't study with me. So that's my rule, my hard rule. And like classical is the basis, so that's what we're going to be doing. And then you can decide, do you want to do hip hop? I've had kids who have only done hip hop. Um, do you want to do Cape Breton fiddle? Do you want to do a swing or klezmer stuff, you know? So they choose their other, but the foundation is going to be classical for the technique. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly do not encourage hours and hours of practice every day. I encourage less time consistently yeah. um, throughout the week. So, and then also thinking about it, like practicing without your instrument, you know? So yeah. singing your songs, listening to your songs, moving while you listen to a song, like that kind of stuff so that you can internalize if you're trying to memorize a piece of music or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so just kind of different techniques. Mm -hmm. And I do really, really like working one-on-one -on -one with the individual that's in front of me. So I can really see their likes and dislikes and what they're drawn to, how they prefer to work, you know, and then kind of go with that route rather than one size fits all, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I've only done, I mean, I've you know, taught master classes and stuff and workshops, but never, um, I've never done class teaching. To me, that's so intimidating, especially with violin. I, I, I guess people have their ways of working, but it's so important to have music in schools. And it's, at least in Ottawa, it's very rare that there's any string program. It's not a, right. a common thing. What are, what are your thoughts about that? Well, um, the pandemic, of course, cut my touring career for that time. Yeah. Um, and I was just home. And so actually the Halifax Regional Arts, which is, um, I suppose, a partner with the Halifax School Board, um, they facilitate all of the violin lessons around HRM. Mm -hmm. um, so here, all of the schools, almost all of the schools inside Halifax and just around Halifax um, have violin. Wow. Yeah, it's awesome. Because when I was growing up, only the schools in downtown Halifax had that. So I was actually shipped from my home uh, for one hour on the bus to get to a school so that I could play violin. From um, what age, Gina? Uh, I started that when I was 11. No, but the kids now in school. Is oh, it elementary? Um, grade four. So in grade okay. three, you register to start the program in grade four. So nine around. Okay. Yeah. Um, and also cello, and there are some violas as well for kids mm -hmm. who want to do that, which is great. Um, but yeah, so they asked me, and I had done a lot of workshops like you, like going into the school, doing a workshop or something, and then leaving, right? So that's fun and the end of it. I had never been, I never imagined that I would be a violin teacher in the school system mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. Um, but then COVID happened and this call came and I was so hurting for work, you know, I'll take it. And it's in my field. So I was actually super, super grateful to get that gig. And then I liked it. I liked it way more than I thought I would. Yeah. There's a lot of bureaucratic stuff that I don't like about the school system. Um, and it really is a system. And I can see a lot of similarities to other systems yeah. that I also don't support. Um, but that's why I feel like it's even more important to get like genuine, loving, caring people into that system. And the kiddos that I was working with were awesome. Like they challenged me in a way that none of my private students ever could. <laughs> and, and I liked that, you know, I liked it. 
I really, really had to think in different ways. Um, and it was super challenging because we only had a half an hour a week with these groups. Okay. Now, normally the groups would be bigger, but with COVID, they had to be a smaller class size. Thankfully, I don't know like how I'm going to handle a bigger class size. Um, but the smaller group was manageable, but half an hour a week was really challenging. So it was just about keeping their interest and trying to get them to play at home. And this was in person? You were able to be in person? At first it was in person. Then we went into lockdown. It was online. Then we got lifted back into person and then lockdown mm -hmm. online. So you can't play with people uh, synchronously online. No. So with beginners, are you doing call and response? How are you managing that online? Yep. I actually, I will say, it benefited quite a bit the students, um, most of the students, to be online. I was super surprised. And it's mm. because they're all muted, right? Yeah. So at least for that one half hour, now they're playing for a whole half hour. Yeah. Whereas before, they weren't necessarily playing for a half hour if we were taking turns or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then they can unmute and play their little thing and I can give one-on-one -on -one instruction and then mm -hmm. they mute again and practice what I just said. Mm -hmm. So we actually had all of the people in the class playing different pieces. Okay. Some were cruising through and some were having struggles, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I could see the benefit of that, but we weren't playing together. Like you said, so there was no feeling of like ensemble. There was no feeling of togetherness and that kind of special way that you get when you're with one another playing. Mm -hmm. So I feel possibly in the future, there will be like a hybrid of some online stuff and in-person stuff, um, mm -hmm. just as a keeper, you know, from COVID. Yeah. Um, so we'll see, but I'm about to go do an education degree to come back and to continue this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you incorporate some improvisation games in your work in the classroom? Oh yeah, right away. That's one of the first things that we do. What Can you tell us what kind of things you do with them? Um, well, even just right away, like just to get them like some energy out because mm -hmm. as a new person, you know, there's all these funny energies in the room. Yeah. So just yell a little bit, <laughs> but controlled yelling. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, Certain things like even yell as loud as you can and then now whisper as soft as you can, you know, so they're using dynamics and stuff. They're not even necessarily like cognizant of that, but they're expelling energy. And then when you get them to be really quiet, now they're like more present, right? Mm -hmm. And paying attention. So then we can say, okay, get your violins. Um, and then I usually do a call and response, like a hot jazz style call and response over minor swing. So I'll play the chords on the piano and I'll I'll say ba da ba da 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 and just get them to use like two notes or even one note A and E usually we start with, and then they really feel like they're making music you know they're making something that sounds good, they're making it up out of their head I mean it is a call and response but they're still doing it you know, and it usually takes a few weeks to set up into this but I try by the end of the year to have every person be the caller at least once you know so that they can all experience that mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of my go-to like right off the bat that's what we're doing mm -hmm. and can you talk about what it was like when you first started to improvise in public I believe you have a story about that <laughs> it was absolutely terrible it was so embarrassing <laughs> 
Oh man. Um, yeah. Well, the very, very first time I was asked to improvise was actually even before a band I played with uh, called Gypsophilia. So before that, um, someone asked me to improvise on one of their songs and it was in G major. And they just said, you know, it's G, just do whatever you want. And they played the track and there was nothing. Like, I wish I could enter this state in meditation. There was nothing in my head. And they stopped, you know, and they said, okay, we're going to try again. Okay. Yep. Pop it on. So they popped it on nothing. And I just burst into tears. I just cried in their recording studio. And I said, I'm so sorry. Like, I can't do this. I don't know what to do. And so that was the first kernel, which uh, was still inside of me when Gypsophilia kind of started. Um, and I had never improvised in front of other people. I had never really improvised ever in my life, even to just pick up my violin and play something. I would play Bach or something, you know, so it was never mine. And then uh, I started playing with this band, Gypsophilia, and we were started to get really popular really fast, lots of gigs, booked solid. And um, every single time we played, I mean, the style of the song is to like play the head, every person takes a solo and the head out, right? So we would play the head and every person would take a solo and then it would come to me and I would literally put my violin behind my back and just be like, or just, nope, next, just point to the next person. And then finally, one of my bandmates um, said, you know, we're all working really hard to, to play these concerts and you're cutting out of your solo every song, every night. So we're holding your check until you solo. We're going to keep your money, basically. So that was a really good incentive to start to play. And my very first solos were just, I listen back, I have them all on CD. It's um, cute. Like I look back with such tenderness at that person, you know, who was completely out of their comfort zone, uh, completely anxious in their mind. But the only thing coming out was like, D, 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 G, D, 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 low D, D. That's the end. <laughs> so it's been quite a, a learning curve since then. Mm -hmm. Is there advice you'd give your the young younger Gina looking back? Just relax. <laughs> like my goodness, just chill out a little bit, you know? Um, yeah, because the, the anxiety was coming from this place of like, I'm not good enough. I don't sound like these guys. I want, do you know what it was actually? I will tell you. I wanted to sound like Stefan Grappelli. Mm -hmm. And there was this one magical day where I had the revelation of like, no, I don't want to sound like Stefan Grappelli. I want to sound like Gina Burgess. Mm -hmm. And then boom, it was just that like mind flip. Mm -hmm. uh, everything changed to me. Then I wasn't trying, you know, I was just doing, just being. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, very helpful. And I started to enjoy the music more. So I started to move a little bit more. Like even the first footage of me playing with Gypsophilia, my music stand was there. I was very serious, you know. The band said, ditch the stand. My God, just get rid of that. It's like, okay, that was scary, but I did it. Started memorizing the, the tunes, memorizing the chord changes, and then feeling the chord changes. Oh, these are all the same. They're just in different keys, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a process, but as soon as I stopped trying to sound like anyone else, that's when the gem, that's where it all happened. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I heard uh, through the grapevine that Stefan Grappelli was actually pretty insecure and he had, I guess maybe, I don't know if it was later in his career, but he had it in his contract. He would only play certain tunes in certain keys. Huh, if you really? want to play with him, yeah. Wow, I wish I could put that in my contract. Really though? <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Um, like, no, not necessarily, but actually I did have an experience um, last summer, it was in COVID. Holy, like I hadn't improvised in the jazz style in a long time because like basically uh, I'm playing a lot of rock and roll right now, folk mm -hmm. rock, I don't even know what to call it, but um, not jazz. Mm -hmm. And I got hired to do this gig and I'm not gonna say who it was, she definitely knows. Um, but I got the charts and I was a little bit cocky. I won't even lie to you, you know? I thought, oh, I can do this. I listened to the tunes a couple of times. I didn't even look at the music. Mm. I just thought, yep, yeah, I got this. And then I went to the studio, I did not have it. Mm. Oh man, I did not have it at all. And the chords were out there chords, like with all of these extensions, you know, that I hadn't thought about in eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. um, and it was brutal. I even said at one point to the engineer, like, I can't do this. Just, you're gonna have to get someone else to do this. I'm, I'm quitting. He's like, Gina, you can do this, you can. Like, let's stick with it. And he helped me a little bit. And honestly, God love him. Like he did some studio magic to make that album. But I learned so much from that. Like those are the experiences. It's one thing to just sound great all the time and do your thing, right? But it's those experiences that level up you yeah. as a musician, you know? So I'm thankful for that experience, but it was super uncomfortable. And that was only like last summer, you know? Yeah, because it's such a different language to play any kind of jazz. But I think we all have to push outside our comfort levels all the time as musicians, or we will just kind of stagnate, right? Yep, totally. But I, I understand. Like, I wonder about like, especially like the rock world. People play their their anthems like they're expected. If they do a big stadium show, people want to hear that tune they've been loving for ten, twenty years. But maybe that artist just really wants to play new material only. Oh, totally. Yeah. So there has to be a balance, I'm guessing, when you're touring. There does. I've experienced that with Gypsophilia, and I've experienced that with the Jerry Cans. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully I'll experience it with my solo album someday. Well, let's but, talk uh, about this too. Yeah. Yeah. No, you do need a balance because like, of course, as I was saying er earlier, like the audience is part of the band, right? So if they're really longing to hear this song, um, Ook Ook, for example, is our like big hit with the Jerry Cans. And mm -hmm. like, I think to myself every gig, I'm so glad I love this song. I'm so glad because we will be playing that song well for the whole time we're a band. Like we'll mm -hmm. never stop playing that song because that's what people love. Um, I think if it were something that I really disliked, you know, that would be another story. But you need, you need that balance to play them some new stuff and some stuff that's, um, that they love and that they know and they can sing along to, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Thank you, Gina. That was beautiful. You're welcome. So your new soul album is coming out soon? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I've been working on it for six years. <laughs> so there's no rush. Um, but I am feeling like uh, it's soon. The chicken is uh, ready to hatch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So have you recorded anything in the studio yet or just working on tunes? Oh, no. It's all done. It's mastered. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So I recorded it uh, mostly. Actually, I recorded the whole thing in Dartmouth at New Scotland Yard. That's uh, Joel Plaskett Studio. Super beautiful space. So I was really thankful for that. I got a grant to do that. And then... Um, had it produced in Montreal at Break Glass Studios with Jace, who is the the last Jerry Cans producer. Mm -hmm. And I wanted him in particular to do this album uh, because I had worked with him with the Jerry Cans, so I knew our vibe worked. But also, he, uh, through the Jerry Cans and through some other projects, has worked with throat singers. So I know he knows how to mix them, how to hear them properly, and mm -hmm. all of that. So um, I got another grant to do that, which was super. And uh, it just got mastered like a few weeks ago. Now I'm working with this buddy who's in Thailand right now, but for the album art. Mm -hmm. um, it's called Is Now. That's the name of the album, Is Now. And it's maybe next summer, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I'm in school, so I don't really want to release it while I'm in school. Right. Yeah, then I feel like it will be time. So what kind of um, music is on this album? Is it a mix of styles or...? Yep, I'd say. Um, it's super eclectic, actually. So there's some pieces on there, like one I wrote while I was doing my yoga teacher's training, and it's called mm -hmm. Something New, and it's basically like a piece of solo Bach, like one of the sonatas or something. So it's very much in that style. Mm -hmm. And then that has a, a sister piece called SOS that I wrote when I was really um, needing help, but like unable to ask for it, and then actually unable to receive it when it was offered mm. so just seeing this whole situation happening so i wrote it um called sos and i actually took that tune so it's on my solo album but it's also on the last jerry cans album as well mm -hmm. um and it's super fascinating to hear the two renditions i guess if mm. you will but that one is with a delay pedal so i've been using some different pedals in uh all different situations and yeah, this one's pretty heavy. So it uses a delay pedal, distortion pedal, and the SOS one is very melancholy. And I would actually recommend looking at the Jerry Cans video that we have right now. We had this dancer from Toronto um, moving in a way that almost looks like a boomerang, mm -hmm. but it's to represent that she's stuck. Right? I saw that, yeah. Yeah. Really moving. Isn't it amazing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when, when I got that back, I was just, actually I cried. I cried and cried and I watched it again and cried more. And of course we put it out in the pandemic. So yeah. we weren't planning for that at all. But of course everyone was stuck and it was just perfect timing, you know? Mm -hmm. And with the whole social medias, I don't know if you noticed, there's some scenes where they're looking at their screen and it's just flashing in front of their face. Like, yeah, that's a big part of our lives, right? So we need to have balance with that. And that's a big part of that piece. So it was interesting to, to play it my way, I guess, or not even my way, but with the people on my solo project in that group versus the Jerry Cans. Mm -hmm. Then there's like uh, some folky tunes more so. Actually, someone labeled them my Klez Breton, which I love. <laughs> I love that term. So I'm using Klezmer scales, mm -hmm. but the 
chord progression is like a Cape Breton fiddle tune. Mm -hmm. So it does the whole classic, like go down a step, then come back up, up mm -hmm. a step. Um, so there's two songs on there like that. One of which actually has, uh, we just finished a music video for, my very first music video, which I'm really excited for. Um, what else is on there? There's a dance tune, like a very, very trancey. So I kind of, I love this idea of classical trance. So it's very much like um, Philip Glass or Steve Reich. Those are my heroes, like big heroes. Terry Riley actually is number one big hero. Um, I just love that minimalist, repetitive trance-like stuff. So I do a lot of that. And of course, throat singing is that too, which is why I think I'm so, I love throat singing so much because you get into that um, mystical, you can get into that mystical state mm -hmm. through repetition. Mm -hmm. So some of the pieces on there are like that too. I remember uh, developing some of these pieces and I was crashing at my mom's place in between tours. And uh, one piece I thought, oh, this is it. I've just nailed it. This is perfect. And my grandma comes into my room and she's like, God, Gina, that's enough to drive you mad. <laughs> I was like, I did get it. Perfect. Thanks, Grammy. <laughs> so it's not for everybody, but um, I feel like on this album, there is something for everybody, you know, mm -hmm. and it just happened that way. I wasn't trying to do anything. It just happened like that. So you mentioned pedals. So is that just like part of your process too with, with working on pieces? Um, the pedals actually came from playing with Gypsophilia. Okay. And the guitar players in that band, of course, used pedals. Mm -hmm. And I've always been intrigued. And then I heard, um, well, Final Fantasy at the time, but Owen Pallet play. And I was looking at his pedal board and just like totally amazed and intrigued. Mm -hmm. um, and again, going back to this whole trance idea, you can do that with loopers, <clears throat> you know, and different. Um, I love delay mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And so I started experimenting with Gypsophilia. That was the very first time actually that I used a pedal and it was very minimal, but it was great. And then I brought those same pedals to the Jerry Cans and started playing with them. Mm -hmm. And I only have three pedals that I use at the moment. Um, I'm not techie like in any way. So they need to be super easy. Um, but I can definitely see why people call it like the rabbit hole. Because mm -hmm. once you go get into it, like you could really get into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then you have to carry them everywhere too. So I remind myself of that. Did you use a looper when you were in isolation this pandemic year for sort of the feeling of playing with people? I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. I actually, um, right now, I have a different one rented from Long and McQuaid, uh, an even easier one, mm -hmm. one button. That's what I said. I want one with one button, and they, yeah. they have one. So, um, yeah, I've been playing with that a little bit, and playing, actually, the only gigs that I really had, like, fairly consistently through the pandemic was at um, this wine restaurant where I live called Wine Grunt, mm -hmm. and they love wine and they love music. So we were always allowed to have one player through COVID. Um, so I brought my looper and that was kind of the first time that I used my looper in front of people because I don't use it with the band and it's nerve wracking to use it in front of people. But this was kind of background music. And honestly, like we were only allowed having 12 people in the bar or something and they were all my family and friends. Yeah. So it was a safe space to try these things. Um, it definitely doesn't have the feeling of playing with other people. Yeah. No. But it was fun. Do you write at the keyboard a little bit too? 
No, um, I write when I'm walking around and songs come into my head okay. when I'm walking. So I just take my um, cell phone mm -hmm. and I sing into my cell phone. Okay. Yeah, sometimes my bandmates will get these really hilarious like little voice memos. Um, but usually those are the beginning of the songs. And actually I know quite a few other musicians who are inspired while they're walking. Sure, yeah. And when you're improvising, do you tend to hear it right before you're playing it or as you're playing it, like the next note's coming or is it, do you surprise yourself? That's a really good question. Um, I think I hear it. There's also, um, not cliches, kind of cliches, but like little licks, I guess, like the building blocks, our Lego blocks. I say yeah. to students, you know, we have our, instead of our bag of tricks, we have our bag of licks. And each one of those is like uh, how you make your mm -hmm. blocks. But that can get a little bit redundant, right? So, um, yeah, there are ways to explore sound with less of a mind. Mm-hmm. So Gina, thanks for agreeing to do a little improv with me. Yes, I'm happy to. Um, do you want to start? Sure. Okay.
I think that's good. <laughs> okay, thank you. That's that was beautiful. Well, on that note, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, you're so welcome. I really appreciated you being interested and in asking me. It means a lot. Oh, of course. <laughs> season one of this podcast had 20 episodes, and season two continues with a really interesting mix of musicians talking about their lives and careers with perspectives on overcoming challenges, finding inspiration and connection through a life so enriched with music. Please follow this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about each new episode.